this last weekend, my family and I, we went camping and uh, uh, went 40 minutes away to Baker Campground. It's part of the Three River Park District. It was really nice, uh, super cold and rainy. I don't know what we were thinking, but we went nonetheless, and uh, we went with some families, had a great time. And um, while we were there, we played a big game of kickball with all the families. And uh, no one looks like an athlete when they're playing kickball. <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult game to play. That's a big ball, and when it, kicks, when it gets kicked hard, it's hard to catch, and then it's hard to throw at somebody and get them out. And, um, and, and my son was really taking this to heart. And the reason is, is because he lives and breathes baseball. I think I've mentioned that before, but that's like his life. And it's our life too, because we're four nights a week, we're at games and practices. Uh, but he loves baseball. And so he had equated uh, a kickball and baseball. And he was struggling, just like all of us were struggling with kickball. And after we got done, he was super frustrated with himself. And he took his hat off and threw it on the ground. And in tears, he screamed, I, I am horrible at baseball, and I'm never playing again. And, uh, you know, I, I, I went to him immediately. We sat down at this picnic table, and I listened to his pain. I listened to his frustration. I listened through the tears. Um, and, and I also knew that that wasn't true. He was really good at baseball. He's a really great baseball player. But his pain was true. And so I wanted to mention that story because last week we had the opportunity to, to begin a conversation that I hope that we can, just with a lot of other important issues in the life of our church and community, that we can enter into willfully and courageously. Um, but it's a beginning, it's a start. And there's complexities in, in, these, in these issues and in these struggles. But here's the deal. People's pain is real every single time. And we have to, we have to empathize and to go through the struggle of being with people in their pain. And then when we do that together, then together we come on on the other side realizing truth. In James chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, the author writes this, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, so God's wisdom, is first of all pure, then it is peace-loving, it is considerate, it is submissive, it is full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers, it says, who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That is my prayer and hope for our church. So over the next four weeks, I'm going to divert over the next four weeks, we're going to tackle a series that we're calling Villains. 
And we're going to be looking at some villains from the Bible, and specifically what it is that we can learn from them. What is it that they didn't do? And not only villains who actually were doing villainous things, but then also people who were seen as villainous, maybe at the outset, but we end up realizing that the ones who are pointing the finger and saying that person is villainous, that those people are actually living out villainous ways themselves. But before we head into this week's message, I first want to focus on what makes a villain. Because when we hear that word, we have all sorts of images that come to our mind. And so the diff, uh, the, the uh, dictionary definition of villain is this, a, de- um, a deliberate scoundrel. I love that word. Do you guys use that in your daily language? Uh, if you do, I want to meet you because that, who are you? Scoundrel, right? If a deliberate scoundrel or criminal, one blamed for a particular evil or difficulty. Now, there are many examples of villains in pop culture. We don't have to think too far to recognize people like uh, Scar, for instance, uh, from The Lion King, right? He wanted to uh, rule that kingdom and, and not only kill Mufasa, but then send his nephew running. And then the Wicked Witch of the West, who wanted nothing more than the ruby slippers that were on Dorothy's feet. And so she was willing to to go through every means in order to obtain those. And then Thanos from the Avengers, right? I mean, he believed that wiping out half of all of existence was the best course of action, and the Avengers are trying to stop him from that. And then you can't mention villain without mentioning Darth Vader, right? Darth Vader from Star Wars, who wanted to rule the entire galaxy, who was propelled by the dark side of the force. We have these pop culture villains, but what about the Bible? What does the Bible say about villains? Who are the villains in the Bible? Well, very early on, we actually see the first villain. So we, got, we, we have the creation of all things in Genesis 1 through 2. Um, we, we see how God created everything in six days, and then the seventh day he took a siesta. And then we see Adam and Eve and the sin that they committed and how sin entered into the world. And then right there in chapter 4 of Genesis, and that's what I want you to turn to. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 4. If you don't, no big deal. It's going to be on the screen. Uh, there's Bibles in front of you as well. You got the Bible app. And man, we just got the Bible in so many different ways, right? That's awesome. But turn to chapter 4, if you have one, and we're going to look at the very first villain. Has anybody ever heard, raise your hand if you've heard the phrase, raising Cain? I'm on now. All right. Now, inadvertently, I've made you all now think of chicken fingers. I'm sorry about that. Lunch is soon. Lunch is soon. Uh, now, I'm not talking about chicken fingers here, but raising Cain, that, that is a, a phrase that means uh, cause trouble or create an uproar. And the person who originated this phrase is Cain himself. And we see this guy in chapter 4 of Genesis, verses 1 through 16. So we're going to read this together, all right? Starting with verse 1. So Eve, remember Adam and Eve, became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. 
Um, later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So, uh, Abel raised animals, and Cain was a uh, farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother and Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. We're going to stop there, and we'll get to the end of it here in a little bit. But throughout this series, we're going to engage with these villains, and we're going to look at two things. One, what, what is it that that villain didn't do? And then two, how can that help us understand that, then what we should do? So first we're going to go, we're going to look at this story and this relationship between Cain and Abel. And at first glance, and you probably have heard this story, it's a relatively popular one. If you've been in Sunday school, you've definitely heard this story. And and at first glance, when we look at Cain and Abel, we kind of think that Cain's getting a bit of a raw deal. I mean, we, we think, Cain, wow, he's just trying to give an offering to God, and, and, and God is, is like treating him poorly. It's like, God, what did Cain do to you? And, and, uh, and we kind of feel like maybe that's a bit unfair. But right away we see that Cain's focus wasn't on the right person, in that Cain's focus wasn't on God, it was rather on himself. So in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, we read, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So Cain is bringing things. He's bringing his crop as an offering. And then it says, And Abel also brought an offering. But here's the key. Here's the key. This is, this is why the author is making a distinction Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now we know that Cain's focus wasn't on the right person because of Cain's mistake. Cain's mistake here was a lack of worship, a lack of worship. So let's break that down. You see, the difference between Cain's offering and his brother's offering is the difference between two things that we know today. That is religion and Christianity. Religion and Christianity. Let me explain that. You see, Abel brought before God the firstborn and the best parts of what he was responsible for. He gave to God the best of what God had given to him. On the other hand, though, Cain brought whatever he had grown, regardless of whether it was the best or not. See, Cain was going through the motions He didn't bring the best. Instead, he brought the rest. He brought 
leftovers, essentially. See, that's the difference between religion and, and Christianity. That's the difference between religiosity and Christian living. You see, religiosity is about going through the motions. It's making sure you cross the T's and you dot the I's. It's about meandering your way through whatever you have around. It's approaching God like this. Oh, yeah. Where Christianity, following Christ, being a a Christ follower, however, is, is about something different. It's about intentional worship. See, Christianity, uh, Christian living, is about this extraordinary relationship between an unholy people, which are you and me. We are an unholy people, not deserving God and his grace. That relationship between us and a holy God, it's about purposefully living your life, giving God what he deserves because he is God. It's about giving him our best. And so what does it mean to give God our best? Oswald Chambers, a famous theologian in the time of C.S. Lewis, he writes that giving God the best is really, giving God the best of what he's given us is the definition of worship. He further says that we need to be careful with what we do and with the best that we have, what we do with the best that we have. It means that when we receive a blessing, which we do, we, we need to turn around and offer that blessing back to God, the giver of all things. And it means giving God the best in your time. So the time that you spend in your life, that you are giving the best of that time to God, it's giving God the best in your talents. We are all uniquely gifted It's giving God the best in your treasure, whether that be your fiscal resources or your physical practical resources, and it means giving God the best in your trials, not trying to survive your trials, but actually giving God the best of that time. And when we give that blessing back to God, he then takes that blessing that we give back to him, and then he makes it a blessing to others. It's spiritual recycling. Right off the bat, Cain failed to adhere his life to receive blessings from God and then give the best of what he had received. And so the story of Cain reveals this truth, that we are to give God our best, not the rest. We are to give God the best, not the leftovers, not the, oh, oh, yeah, So then how did God respond to to Abel's faithful worship? Because Abel had a different outlook, right? And then how did God respond to Cain's lack of worship? In verses 4 through 5, it says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So then what was Cain's response to God's response? In verse 5, it says, Cain became angry and his face was downcast. That's an important word. See, we learned something critical at this point, and it comes from that word downcast. These words are important when we truly understand what it is that God's trying to teach us here. Because the Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word, why are we looking at that? Because the Old Testament was written in the the Hebrew language, ancient Hebrew. 
And that word downcast means to go from a high position to a low position. And so before we dive into this further, let's look again at how God responds to Cain at this moment in verses 6 through 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, he says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And what does God mean when he says the word accepted? Because as soon as we read that, we have certain assumptions that we place in, in God's heart and mind in this moment. But what does that word mean? The Hebrew word that's being used for accepted means that the state of having a high status, of being lifted up. Okay, so now we have those two definitions. We see something compelling and intrinsic to the nature of God here in this story. You see, God's desire for Cain and for, for you and for me is to be lifted up. God's desire for us is to have high status. But Cain instead is downcast. See, Cain is assuming a low position. So do you see what's happening here? See, when we think about this story, and possibly even as you read it now, we assume that God was angry with Cain right off the bat. That's our immediate assumption. But God wasn't mad at Cain. Who was mad at Cain? Cain. See, God wanted Cain to be lifted up. He wanted Cain to be in a high position. It wasn't God who was angry with him. Cain was angry at himself. You see, Cain willfully placed himself in a position of low status. He took a position of low status. He had become so focused on himself and not God that he set the measurement of his worth based on his own standards, not God's. The story of Cain reveals to us that, yes, we should give God our best, not the rest, not the leftovers, but it also reveals to us that the responsibility of your worth belongs to God alone. Not us, not other people. We have to stop giving the responsibility of our worth to other people. We need to stop giving that responsibility of our worth to ourselves. And we need to give it to God. That's what happens to us. We live our lives based on a measurement that we place on ourselves and we give that responsibility to others. And then we assume a low status. But God's desire for our lives is not a low status. It is a high status. And that high status only comes when we give God the responsibility of measuring our worth and not giving that responsibility to ourselves or to others. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal because that's what made Cain susceptible to sin. We see the progression here. The first step is that Cain focused on giving God the rest, the leftovers, not the best. And because his focus wasn't giving, on God, giving God the best, it made it easy for him then to base the measurement of his worth on his own standards, not God's. And then something, something 
critical happens in that moment. Because in verse 7, God says to Cain, he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You see, just like with Cain, our decisions, the decisions that you and I make, they do not increase or decrease the presence of sin. But here's the catch, because sin is always there. If we, like Cain, though, however, if we assume a low position, if we measure our worth based on our own parameters or the parameters of others, we then make ourselves susceptible to sin's grasp. And so the story of Cain reveals to us that we should, yes, give God our best, not the rest, not the leftovers, and that the responsibility of our worth belongs to God and God alone, but it also reveals to us that Cain's failure to give God the best and Cain's failure also in placing the responsibility of his worth in his own hands and not in God's, it reveals that, that if we don't do those things, that we will willfully put ourselves within arm's reach of sin. We will willfully put ourselves within arm's reach of sin's grasp. You see, it's God's ideal that we rule over sin. That's what he wants for us, not that it rule over us. He says, again, he continues to say in verse 7, after he says, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You see, sin is not something that happens to us. Sin is not something we stumble upon. Sin is always something we enter into will, willfully, either, either willful decision or by putting ourselves willfully in arm's way. And so it's so vitally important that we fix our eyes on God, not on ourselves. And we do that by committing to give God our best, not the rest, not the leftovers. And when we do, we see our true worth. Because we're not giving the responsibility of measuring our worth to other selves, to other people, or to ourselves, but we're giving it to God. And when we commit to God, giving God our best and give him the responsibility to measure our worth, we stay outside the reach and grasp of sin. There's a podcast that, that, that out there that I love. It's called Cautionary Tales. And as the podcast description um, reads, the episodes are stories of awful human error, tragic catastrophes, daring heists, and hilarious fiascos. And that's what I hope that this series will be for us. Stories of people who either acted in a way that teaches us the right way or stories of people perceived by others as villainous, but at second glance, we find that the ones pointing the fingers end up actually being the villains. And in each of these stories, we're going to see something that is absolutely beautifully consistent. Because the, the story of Cain and Abel, it ends, and, and you know, Cain goes ahead and he kills his brother because of that, that, that assumption of low status. 
Because he didn't put his focus on, on God, he put it on himself, and he measured his own worth based on his own parameters, not that of God's. And so he made himself susceptible to sin, which led him then to kill his brother. But then we see in verse 11, it says this, God says, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. There's discipline that comes from sin. Always discipline that comes from sin. In verse 12, when you work the ground, God says, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And then Cain said to the Lord, and this is how we would respond too if we're disciplined. My punishment is more than I can bear. That's what my daughter says when I take her phone away for a couple days. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But this is, this is the beautiful moment, and this is something we're going to continue to see time and time and time again. God's response. But the Lord said to Cain, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, a mark to provide protection so that no one who found him would kill him. You see, you see what happened here? Despite Cain's unwillingness to give God the best, despite Cain's propensity to measure his worth based on his own standards, and despite having placed himself within arm's reach of sin and having sinned by taking the, the life of another human being, we continually see throughout the Bible this truth. God's concern for the innocent is matched only by his concern and pursuit of the sinner. See, Cain displayed no remorse there was no apology from Cain in this story. There was no recognition on his part that he had done anything wrong. His only reaction was to save his hide. Yet, God still showed mercy. Now let's be clear about something. And we're going to see this time and time again in these stories. Yes, God is in the business of giving mercy. God is merciful. He is a pursuant God. However, when we lose focus on God and fail to give him our best, and subsequently when we seek to measure our worth by our own standards or by the standards of others, and then find ourselves within arm's reach of sin, God will grant mercy, but he won't neglect discipline. Just as I've trained my dogs to not run into the street, I am at once giving them mercy, and I'm also giving them discipline. God does the same for you and for I. See, God is infinitely merciful, but he demands our focus. Because he knows that anything less than complete dependence and focus on him, it leads to our ruin. This is why God so relentlessly pursues us, and I'll close with this passage in Psalm 91, verses 14 through 15. Because, because he loves me, says the Lord, because you or I love God, says, says the Lord, I will rescue you. I will protect you 
For when you acknowledge my name, when you call on me, I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. The Lord says, I will deliver you and honor 